I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Um, thank you all for coming. I, I'm really, really happy to be here with Sophie. I remember very vividly the first time I read Sophie's work, this piece called Amniotechnics, which I'm going to make her read from later on because I think it's so beautiful. Um, and may, lots of you may have seen it. It's um, published in the New Inquiry Online. And just feeling that um, something finally made sense. An argument that I'd um, known about for a long time was coming back in a cool way. And I wasn't sort of expecting that to happen in feminism. Um, I, in fact, I, I looked at the email that I wrote to Sophie and I had written it was miraculous. And I don't often use that word. So it definitely hit me in a particular way. Um, so where I wanted to start really was to put the argument that Sophie's making into context in the go back to the beginning, well not the beginning, for me it's the beginning of feminism but it might not be for the rest of you, as um, to something that Simone de Beauvoir said. Um, also in the book we talk about Shimon Firestone, a lot of you know her work too, and those of other people as well, Hortense Spillers, and um, someone reminded me of Dora Russell being from the 30s doing this sort of argument against the family too. Um, but I wanted to particularly pick up on this Beauvoir thing because I think it's just a really helpful starting point that Sophie takes somewhere. So much better than Beauvoir starts us off, as she did with lots of things, but it takes us somewhere else. So this is from an um, interview. I'm going to make Sophie be Simone de Beauvoir, obviously. Um, the interview that Beauvoir did in 72. So Beauvoir died like 10 years later. And this is the period where she's doing loads of, um, um, you know, like activism, basically. She signed this thing called the Manifesto 343 the year before, which is where lots of people said they had abortion, even, they hadn't, even if they hadn't. Um, and Schwarz says she's going and getting cool again. And Schwarz asks her, how do you see the relationship between the class struggle and the struggle between the sexes? And Beauvoir says, All that I can say, and what led me to modify the position I took in the second sex, is that the class struggle, properly speaking, does not emancipate women. Whether it's communists, Trotskyites, or Maoists, women are always subordinated to men. Consequently, I am convinced that women must truly be feminists, taking the woman problem into their own hands. Now, society must be analysed in a completely serious way in order to try to understand the relationship between the exploitation of workers and the exploitation of women, and to what extent the elimination of capitalism 
would lead to more favorable conditions for women's emancipation. I don't know. That remains to be done. One thing of which I'm certain is that eliminating capitalism would, at the same time, put things into a better place for women's emancipation. But it would still be far from achieved. Eliminating capitalism does not mean the elimination of the patriarchal tradition, as long as the family remains. I think that we must not only eliminate capitalism and change the means of production, but we must also change the family structure. And that has to be done not even in China. Of course, they have eliminated the feudal family, which brought great changes in the condition of women. But to the extent that they accept the conjugal family, which is still basically an inheritance from the patriarchal family, I do not really think that women in China are liberated. I think the family must be eliminated. I completely agree with all the attempts by women and also incidentally sometimes by men to replace the family with either communes or other forms that have yet to be created. Um, so she is a bit funny there going on about China <laughs> and very Bulgarian. And, um, and, but interesting that we've got this moment where she's saying, okay, so feminists are often told wait for the revolution um, because then you, you know, there won't be any sexism. Beauvoir's saying no. Um, even if the revolution comes, there will be something. There'll be a residue. And then she says, but what we... Re- the reason why that won't work is because the family's still there. And this is what Sophie takes up this idea and makes it beautiful and <laughs> like compelling and, um, and, and makes it new for us right now. Um, so I wanted to sort of start by asking you... That, I mean, one of the most brilliant things, I think, is just the title, Full Surrogacy Now. Like, it's both the demand, it like, tells you what needs to be done and I would have wanted you to sort of explain why you chose that and how it works through the book and mm. what it means. Um, I have a bit of an earnest kind of trademark symbol um, uh, next to the word surrogacy when I'm talking about what usually we are talking about nowadays when we, when we say surrogacy. Um, so I don't mean um, that commercial gestational surrogacy is some kind of great uh, situation whose governing logics should be amplified and extended. It's kind of the reverse. The, the idea of, I mean, it's a sort of philosophical idea that if, if we were to actually pursue the idea of surrogacy to its logical conclusion, we would be um, standing in for each other to such an extent that we would forget what we are standing in for, what original, authentic, proprietary form we are supposed to be supplementing or replacing. Um, it would be a kind of uh, <laughs> utopian situation of, of perfect mutual aid um, in which um, the, the, the sort of already imminent biological reality that we're um, epigenetically swimming in each other's juice and kind of leaking into each other's bodies um, would be sort of um, lifted up into the basis for a politics of truly being at stake to one another, um, of children belonging to everybody and um, of pregnancy being, in a sense, not only for everybody in a community, but but recognised as being by more than just two biological progenitors. Um, that's what I mean by full surrogacy now. No, well, one of the things you do in the book, I think, is really helpful is talk about authorship and co-authorship and how that works as a metaphor for this. So can you... Yeah, that's how that works. I found that in a funny essay by a guy called Mario Biagioli. Um, he says authorship can only be co-authorship, um, and that's something that yeah carries over into 
you know, this, this line that's been taken up recently in a, um, an edition of Boston Review that I've participated in, the idea that all reproduction is assisted. Um, and people who have sort of tried to manufacture a human being know this implicitly. Um, they know that it's, it's much more than just a kind of um, self-directed unfolding of life itself or a, um, a sort of autonomous... Uh, um, I mean, it can feel terribly lonely, of course, and that's because of the way that parenting and childbearing is organized under capitalism. But, you know, in order for it to work, you need so many different actors. And people right across the political spectrum think they agree with this. They say it takes a village, right? Everyone from um, my self-designated new uh, nemesis, Tucker Carlson, uh, who wants me on his show... Um, <laughs> because I hold everything for which he stands, um, you know, to be unholy. I mean, this is what, this is what he, he said, and I agree. Um, I, um, but, but not just him, also right across the spectrum, including Hillary Clinton, you know, it takes a village. Um, she wrote a children's book with that title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you can stand for the principle, it takes a village to what? To, to raise a child um, and simultaneously deport children back to Honduras and to their deaths, you know, um, queer children in particular who are refugees from the institution of the nuclear family, for example. But it doesn't carry over to the idea of actual gestating. Um, and I think that's the area where the, um, the multiplicity of the labor that is required, um, you know, gets, gets kind of vanished from view. Um, no, that makes sense. You, you talked about it as well in the book of being sort of the book comes out of conversations you've had with other people and other things you've read and connecting it to Beauvoir. And, it's so, and for me, that works because of the way it connects back to, to the things that I you know, see, you know, have read yeah. but don't see talked about very much anymore. Um, can I make you read from oh. Amniotechnics? So it. I'll make um, Sophie read so you can see what I mean. It's my first time reading this. Okay. To my knowledge... All humans in history have been manufactured underwater in amniotic fluid. Think about it. How do you bring a body to life? Filmmakers and fiction writers have always implied that you need to have a tank. Dr. Frankenstein's adult baby and knockoff versions of him are animated in a bath full of electric brine. The effort that goes into husbanding, husbanding that body of water is self-evidently thought of as creative labor. Pregnancy, though, is much less commonly thought of as a magical Frankensteinian tank. Amniotic fluid, or in Latin, liquor amni, is initially a mix of water and electrolytes, and later sugar, scraps of vagrant DNA, fats, proteins, piss, and shit. As pre-borns, our embryonic mouths, noses, and lungs are filled with this liquor. We move our tiny diaphragms and intercostal muscles in a dedicated rehearsal of future breathing. But we do not breathe, nor do we drown. It's said that some escapologists and deep water divers will try to slow their heart rates by remembering this time before fear, this state of non-antagonism toward water, to calm themselves enough to perform their tasks. A live birth took place at Standing Rock, it was reportedly an event in which dozens of midwives participated. Our first home is water, said some of these midwives. 
patiently repeating this message to reporters and broadcasters who crowded around. Water is our first medicine. It's under the banner of water protection that 2016's epochal mobilization of indigenous people in the United States and supporters took place, a blockade of the Dakota Access Pipeline. If there were just one slogan for the mass revolt, it would be the Lakota phrase, Ni Wishoni, water is life. Less commonly known is the fact that Niwishoni is also the actual name for a potable water pipeline that risks contamination and corrosion in three places from the planned oil pipeline. As well as representing an ideology, Niwishoni is thus a literal pre-existing infrastructure serving several parts of nearby indigenous reservations, ecology and techniques. Water protectors vindicate the need and desire for water provisioning technology over the interests of swifter fossil fuel transport. And theirs is, I feel tempted to say, a cyborg concept of water. Water as social and pre-social. Water as companion technology. Water as both medium and message. The cyborg hydro-feminist Astrida Maimanis paraphrases it like this. If we are all watery, then we all harbour the potential of watery gestationality, because gestationality need not take the form of a human reprosexual womb. We may be gestational as lover, as neighbour, as accidental stranger. In fact, it is the contention of Nymanus' book, Bodies of Water, that not only may we be gestational, we must. We learn gestationality from water, writes Neymanis, but we urgently need to learn better. That's my opinion. The question is, how might we, in partial dissolution of our own sovereign subjectivity, also became, become gestational for this gestational milieu? One possible answer, by supporting water protectors. A spirit of eco-revolutionary hydrofeminism or full surrogacy, animates the live rebellion against crude oil routes threatening the integrity of lakes like Lake Wahe and rivers like the Missouri. Water typically abandons a pregnancy and drains away, heralding the beginning of pregnancy's end because of a signal from fetal body chemistry, which at the same time forces the liquor out of the fetus's lungs in preparation for their meeting the unwet world. In a C-section, it is a scalpel that releases the water. In each scenario, exit from liquor amni and the death by stretching of the oxygen-providing umbilical cord trigger an irreversible and rather bittersweet development. The replacement of water by air in certain core pipelines of our anatomies. Yet even as we become land-dwelling animals for whom drowning is an ever-present danger... Humans remain overwhelmingly water. Underwater is the only word we have in English to refer to what is really a state of being in water. Water in water. It frightens more than it attracts. After all, it might be fine for fetuses, as the National Geographic video I discussed in another chapter you don't know about, <laughs> or the countless water births captured on YouTube attest, but it's extremely dangerous for people to be filled with baby-making water. And a person does not suddenly become an amphibian by virtue of being pregnant. 
Yet she, or they, or he, is flooded from the inside. Control of the circulation overridden, arteries jammed, wide open, blood pressure forced into overdrive. A plug forms to seal as much as a liter inside the vessel that is the amnion, the placental tank. Gestation, like all labor, is cyborg because watery. Water, like surrogacy, is facilitative and directed towards the becoming of other bodies. This is Naimanis again, but not necessarily tied to the female human. It is an unbalanced techno-social co-production involving less than two, but more than one. And lest that sound cozy, recall the molecular biologist's testimony, this is Suzanne Sadadin, that the unborn homo sapiens deploys all manner of manipulation, blackmail, and violence as its contribution to being made. But deploys against whom? After all, as pre-persons, these tiny animals are part of the mother. Though the DNA might be utterly distinct, fetuses are, during pregnancy and for a while afterwards, concretely a part of their holder-nurturers, almost a kind of organ. And the idea that the two discrete selves exist in pregnancy seems linguistically necessary to describe what happens there, but it's factually dubious. Given advances in understandings of chimerism, the cellular cross-colonization between organisms, and symbiogenesis, which is interspecies cooperation, in recent years, it almost seems eccentric to believe in individual autonomy nowadays, let alone in fetal autonomy. The word individual, by definition, never, retur- never referred to gestators anyhow. Our wateriness is our surrogacy. It is the bed of our body's overlap, and it is not necessarily, but possibly, a source of radical kinship. To an extent, bodies are always leaky, parasited, and non-unitary, as the vital and varied flora of bacteria in every body, not just gestating ones, demonstrates. In the accounts of earthly life, given by biologists such as Lynn Margulis, we are all revealed to be disconcertingly pregnant, multiply pregnant, with myriad entities, bacteria, viruses, and more, some of whom are even simultaneously gestating us, or rather providing some crucial developmental functions on our behalf. It's impossible to deny, however, that fetuses, themselves full of parasites and symbionts, distinguish themselves from other animals. They do so brutally. According to some etymologists, the word amnion, which refers to the inner membrane of the placenta, a sack of water analogous to the Promethean tank in the sci-fi fantasy, is a diminutive of the word for lamb, amnos, as in little lambs to the slaughter. According to others, amnion derives from amnos, the Greek for a bowl or bucket in which the blood of sacrificed animals or human (laughs) offerings was collected. So clearly the Greeks were confused about who the lamb is in the situation, since the last thing the contents of the amnion resembles behaviorally is a little lamb, meek and mild. Furthermore, there are many interlocking bowls and membranes down there. The amnion doesn't fill with blood ever, except in some types of abortion. Menstruation is a feature of the endometrium, and it is between the placenta's outer membrane, the chorion, and the endometrium that the sacrificial blood is typically caught during hemorrhage. 
Who holds and catches whose blood? Who rips into whom? Doctor or monster? Gestator or gestatee? What's certain is that monsters rampage, as Mary Shelley wrote, because of a lack of care. It was probably ultimately the man of science denied the chance to be a mother, who was the more destructive monster on the rampage. I call amniotechnics the art of holding and caring, even while being ripped into, at the same time as being held. Amniotechnics is protecting water and protecting people from water in the spirit of full surrogacy. I want a generalized praxis of this, which doesn't forget the importance of holding mothers and thwarted mothers and, yes, even wannabe single fathers afloat in the juice, breathing but hydrated, well-watered but dry. I hope it's possible even for fantasists of ectogenetic progeny like Frankenstein, who have dreamed of a birth unsullied by a womb, to become capable amniotechnicians in time. Their worldviews may not hold water, but I think they too have to be held. Let them too experience, in Sylvia Plath's words, nine months of becoming something other than themselves, of separating from this otherness, of feeding it and being a source of milk and honey to it. Let us assume that it is possible for any of us to learn that it is the holders, not the delusional authors, the self-replicators and patenters who truly people the world. Water management may sound unexciting, but I suspect it contains key secrets to the kin-making practices of the future. Just as with water, we've consented too much to the privatization of procreativity surrogates to the front. By surrogates, I mean all those comradely gestators, midwives, and other sundry interveners in the more slippery moments of social reproduction, repairing boats, swimming across borders, blockading lake-threatening pipelines, carrying, miscarrying. Let's all learn right now how comradely beings can help plan, mitigate, interrupt, suffer, and reorganize this amniotic violence. Let's think how we can assist in this regenerative wet wrestling, sharing out its burden. Full surrogacy now. As I was hearing you read it, I've read that a few times and I've ever heard you read it before. Thank you. I've never read it before. Um, I was thinking a bit about... Frankenstein. I was thinking a bit about um, a winter lecture of the, um, given by Frances Sonna Saunders a couple of years ago at the LRB where she uses the image of um, a refugee, refugees who were sort of drowning in, off Lampedusa. Uh, one of them was a 20-year-old woman who gave birth while she was drowning and then both the um, baby and the woman were found together. And thinking about a link that you make throughout the book of between birth and death, how close they are. Um, and also just thinking about the cheesy stuff in the second wave, it was all about women and water and circles and like how you bring that back in this cool way where it could be like 
blood and like like actually physical liquids but sort of gross ones i was feeling a little bit gross with the placenta stuff i don't know if anyone else was <laughs> you probably haven't had your dinner yet um so i wondered if you could talk a bit I, I was interested in how lots of feminist books have a funny shape they um are too long or they're sort of an essay but not or they're an odd thing and um i i felt reading your book that it had a different sort of thing that it was more it was more interested in beautiful sentences and doing things differently and I wondered if I, I didn't know why feminists hadn't done that before generally and why if you thought that was something you consciously doing or wanted to do or whether you think beauty can be used as a feminist weapon <laughs> not physical beauty um it's hard for me to answer that question <laughs> non uh, arrogantly right <laughs> yeah, sorry <laughs> no I'm happy that that's um how it's worked out I uh I might be an exodus from academia. The secret about this book is that it is it is kind of a, a, a PhD thesis, except I rewrote it, obviously. Um, I, uh, I think I don't want to ever go back to the university, even if it would have me, which it probably wouldn't, because there are no jobs there. Um, but I, I, did, I did study English Lit once, long ago, and I... Um, I think beauty um, is what attracts me when I hear people speaking. I need to be able to, I need to feel communicated with. I need to feel um, a bit enchanted. So if, I, if I've achieved a little bit of uh, stylistic um, magic, then, then that's, that's the only way I can imagine um, persuading people of my unnatural ends. Um, um, and I- I thought maybe we should go back to the final things that you say, this sort of image of what the family might look like if it doesn't look like to um, a man and a woman sitting at a breakfast table with two children, um, hating, you know, talking about what will happen that day, darling. What, like, what does the family look like for you? What do you want it to look mm. like next? I don't know. I'm pretty sold on Matapoiset in... Women on the Edge of Time, people know this, right? There's sort of some specialists of um, kid binding, um, as it's called, um, in this post-capitalist utopia. Some people are dedicated full-time to binding children, as it's called, and uh, others might, at least as I imagine it, sort of do a part-time contribution to the tactile sort of arts of caring for the fetuses suspended in the oceanic slurry of the brooder. Um, I mean, now technologies are being mooted by entirely the wrong people for the wrong reasons, um, by which uh, fetal sheep could be um, taken, taken over from the womb to, you know, in their in their view, obviate the problem of abortion, remove uh, the need for abortion as they see it um, by, by, you know, stepping in at the hot button sort of threshold of 23 weeks. And I, but I, I imagine that these things... Because like, you can see it, so that all those arguments about the heartbeat stuff doesn't really hold... It changed somehow, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know um, what... The, the, the vision of the family is in a situation where gestators are, you know, given options to either proceed in the kind of wildly sublime, pleasurable, but also 
unsafe kind of um, conditions that you know nature provides, or or could also opt for something kind of different and perhaps technologically attenuated. I, I have nice fantasies about sort of little um, amnio bags, little. The, 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 the thing that's being developed in Philly where I live is called the biobag. Um, and I, I wonder if there is a way of, um, of thinking about a sharing of gestation that is actually literally technologically, um, you know, uh, realized. I, I mean, this isn't the main part of my book. I don't talk about this at all in full surrogacy now. But I, I, I think, uh, you know, a situation in which um, pregnancy is... is um, has options, you know, where you can, where when you're put to work by a placenta, be it one that you have had transplanted into you, um, or one that you were born with, um, you know, was, was something that you could actually do without worrying that you would be one of the 300,000 people a year that that process actually kills, or, you know, one of the millions and millions who, who are left with, you know, lifelong health problems, um, afterwards. Um, I, I think, we, you know, uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd have a sort of, we'd have a, a, a completely. There's a there's a line in Mary O'Brien's *The Politics of Reproduction*, where she says, um, you know, in if if you removed um, capitalism and the patriarchy, children would be different. You can't separate any of these things from the 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 long forgotten dream of children's liberation. Mm. You know, Shulamith Firestone talks about how indissoluble the practices of of kind of children's and women's politics would be because children and women are sort of two categories invented uh, for, for, for the purposes of, uh, you know, shoring up the family, the private nuclear household um, and capitalism. And, and you know, the, the world is so intensely pro-women and children in theory because in practice it, it has no place for the people named by those names. Um, and it's a flip side of that, of that coin. So, mm. so um, I don't know. The queer gestational commune looks like something I can't imagine yet, but I'm really looking forward to living in it. Um, I, I wondered if, as you were talking about that, it made me think of the bio bags, like of some sort of sous vide gone wrong sort of situation. You know, kind of like oh, yeah. clear and you can sort of see, you really don't want to have that. Um, but it made me think a little bit about one of the things you talk about one of the sort of planks of the argument, and I think we should try and talk a bit about more of the argument now, is talking about surrogacy as work. Um, and I, I'm with you on that. I think motherhood is work. I think um, we can talk a bit more about sex worker arguments and liberation and stuff. But I, I, I wonder, like, where does that bring you? Or does that, where does that sort of get you yeah. as an idea? And how does that sort of yeah. smash the family a bit more in a helpful way? Uh, on my tour so far, the question I've been asked most is, what do we lose when we talk about pregnancy as work? That's a real concern. Um, and, um, you know, lots. Yeah, we, we lose loads. <laughs> Absolutely. But that's the case about... Um, but also, what can we see? That, what can, that's what I'm interested in. But yeah, and yeah. you are too, right? Yeah, no, I, I'm interested in what we can see with it. I mean... That you know, uh, this this goes for lots of kind of kinds of work that um, other stuff is going on. We manage. We're, we're very, you know, um, touching creatures, right? We, we we are actually, despite what capitalism steals for, from us and forces us into all the time, managing to um, get up to wonderful things. There's always more than one thing going on. Um, of course, you know, 
there's there's love like wages for housework said you know they say it is love we say it is unwaged work they don't, they're not saying we say it isn't love they never said that <laughs> um and i'm not saying that um it's just also unwaged work <laughs> and we need to think about that and make that visible in order to object to it um and get beyond it um and uh yeah i'm glad i'm glad you framed it the way you have joe um there's some there's some ways of reading the book that somehow miss that i'm talking about gestating more than i am about surrogacy it's it's just yeah just a sort of warning i don't actually talk about surrogacy as much as you would think um it's kind of about thinking rejecting the siloization of the sort of waged gestational workplace quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. you know, in the first place. Um, this was something, you know, none, authorship can only be co-authorship, thank goodness. I'm, I'm having a conversation with loads and loads of people who have, who have taught, told me what to think. That, you know, in the 1980s, surrogacy was on the table in the, you know, in, in the American tabloids because of scandals like Baby M, with which people are probably familiar. And a bunch of um, black Marxists and black feminist radicals said new reproductive technologies you know there's nothing new about this fundamental relation um undergirding the american natural nuclear family at all um not least because enslaved women were surrogates you know this was mm. something argued very successfully by a legal scholar called anita allen um i forgot what you asked me now i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. i was talking about the value of what what happens what why when we see it work when we see surrogacy as work when we see that yeah what what do we get sure Where okay can we go? i mean yeah my basic argument is that um uh unpaid pregnancy is a, is a sort of capitalist hinterland and paid commercial gestational surrogacy is a is a capitalist industry um i mean that's i think that's actually really difficult to deny you've you've got um i should probably spell out the basics maybe that's maybe we've been moving too fast there's you know there's there's an economy some of which is neo-colonial and sort of outsourcing based um with lots of distance involved where the consumers of gestational services are sort of you know collecting you know the products of you know laboring people laboring bodies um that they that they don't ever have to really deal with or meet 
So it's like um, a British couple, like getting the woman in India yeah. and then just never even knowing her name sort of thing. Yeah, that's the classic example. Although I think you get quite complicated dynamics there where there's a sort of prurient um, fascination with that, um, what, what a scholar called Laura Harris calls this kind of cross-racial tourism mm. um, to the exclusion of everything else. And, and you know, in the, in the clinic that I study or my case study, um, there are lots of Indian couples at that clinic and yeah, they never yeah. get talked about in the documentaries and the sort of um, very, you know, um, uh, scandal-mongering kind of news clips about, about what goes on there, you know, because we want the visual effect of Dr. Nina Patel lifting the, you know, the white neonate out of the brown body via her C-section while she's actually on the phone going, pure European, you can always tell, which is a literal thing that happens and has happened. Um, and I, I go into what it means, what she's saying by you can always tell, um, because that's what the surrogacy industry, far from queering the family, which is what, I mean, some of its you know, right-wing cr- critics think it's doing, it's, it's doing the absolute reverse. It's shoring up the idea of a kind of dyadic, proprietarian, biogenetic um, uh, kind of manufacture of the human. And it's shoring up the idea that, you know, you can never quibble with who a child belongs to, that it's guaranteed, that it's stable. You can always tell. Um, um, and, and the surrogate workers on the shop floor of that industry have other, have other ideas, you know. Um, but, um, you know, I, 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 th- I, I hope it's hard to misunderstand my book as an endorsement of, you know, surrogacy TM as it's currently, tra- you know, traded. Um, what we get by saying that pregnancy is work, um, and I mean that literally, you know, not like that kind of metaphorical um, offhand way that people like to say pregnancy is really hard work um, but like literally marxologically you know it's an it's an expenditure of um, you know labor power with a sort of unity of uh, design and execution on some level I mean it's complicated I, I, I don't I don't um, I know that this is a kind of work we can do in our sleep you know um, and it's very difficult to withdraw from um, and yet you know it's clear from from the sort of economics of the industry uh, and what Dr. Nina Patel is sort of racking up in terms of profits and what she what she sort of um, declares about about her employees, this you know th- this work of doing pregnancy is literally um, value productive in this sphere. And in 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 terms of what Wages for Housework was saying, it's it's also got a relationship to capitalism. It's also work. Um, when we do it in our homes. And it's exactly the same process. There's a kind of strange kind of beauty about the fact that the human body doesn't mind whether the embryo that it's gestating has any genetic relation to it, right? (laughs) That you can just put embryos in bodies and and the body goes, cool. (laughs) I know how to do this. I can work with this. Um, Yeah. Um, We should probably move on, shouldn't we? (laughs) I don't know. We can... Be here for a while. Um, uh, I, um, I, the reason why I wanted you to talk about that is because I think it connects with um, some of the arguments about sex work. I was thinking of um, another Verso book called Revolting Prostitutes, um, Melissa Dura Grant's book and work and her writings, and how like um, the arguments of you know we don't just free prostitutes because we think it's no, sex workers because it's bad. We say you know um, what do you want? How should we make sex work yeah. um, 
how should we make sex work better for the sex workers, basically? And that's sort of one of the things you sort of say about the surrogates. And I, I, I just think it's really helpful and interesting to think about how these two um, kind of arguments parallel each other and help each other and how they might join up in some cool way eventually. <laughs> yeah, um, I've sort of tried to uh, coin the term surrogate exclusionary radical feminist <laughs> because the the formations are very, you know, the, the, right down to the actors, the links with right-wing funding and so on and so forth, they're very isomorphic, you know, um, they're a rescue industry. I mean, it's much less well-developed and much less well-known, right? But there are these kind of stop surrogacy now campaigns, in, um, and The Guardian has published, you know, God knows how many columns at this point calling the surrogacy industry a twisted form of slavery, um, trafficking, womb, womb brothels. Um, and, you know, this goes right over the heads of the workers in that industry who have demands to do with, you know, um, better control over their obstetric decisions, higher wages, uh, you know, uh, an absence of stigma, you know, be- better choices about the degree of temporariness um, they experience in the lives of the consumers and the families that they are helping produce and make possible, you know, all kinds of things. Um, but um, in the in the imaginary of people who, you know, um, fundamentally abhor the, the muck of commodification um, and artifice and um, the sorts of... Uh, who would you know, like to be more black and white than it is? Yeah, who, who don't? Who want to be? You who want to? Yeah, exactly. Morally, kind of abstract women and womanhood from commodification, not capitalism. You know, and who want to? You know, um, assert in a way that really protests too much um, how deeply they're attached to a certain suffering-based version of uh, femaleness. Um, which they, which I don't think they enjoy themselves. Um, you know, th- th- there's this kind of, yeah, that you can start to see how transgenderism, as they call it, sex work and surrogacy um, are all part of the same sort of um, uh, denigration, degeneration of, 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 of proper, you know, repronormative... Um, womanhood, and and this is actually really explicit now. That the, the group object came to New York and stood on the court steps, um, and and talked about surrogacy, transgenderism, prostitution, um, and they say they have five issues they're concerned with, but two, three of them are, prost- are prostitution. Um, so so really, it's three. Um, um, and and so this is the sort of trinity of of kind of. Uh, you know, alienation that they see as avoidable. Um, and, and, and rather than kind of, you know, critiquing the industry, um, as I do, um, in order to support the struggles of the workers, I, you know, that's my aim and intention at least, although, I, you know, I'm speculatively also at risk of, you know, speaking over the heads of workers who, who, who may not want the queer gestational commune I'm, I'm trying to read against the grain what I hear in ethnographies of gestational workplaces um, in this industry. But there's this, yeah, there's, there's a kind of, um, there's a sense that, you know, while it seems to me very weird 
when feminists um, who come from the tradition, Tucker Carlson is right about this, if nothing else, feminism has been against the family historically. We've, we have bad memory about this. Gay liberationists, utopian socialists, uh, feminists, all, you know, according to the pamphlets I've been looking at in the archives in, in, my, in, my, home, in my new adoptive hometown, they all, you know, they all, they all wanted something better um, than, than the nuclear private household. And... Uh, it's, it's really strange to me that it is feminists who are kind of, um, you know, saying things in the context of uh, surrogacy politics like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sick and wrong and unnatural to, you know, separate uh, a baby from its mother. You know, the, the, you're, you're, you know th- these are not claims that, I mean, yes, I mean, sorry. that <laughs> um, You know, there is something profoundly kind of conservative um, about about this line of thought, you know? As if we didn't already know how horrible families can be because we yeah. all have one. Um, I, uh, I, I want to open out to all of you lot. There was some... I'm, I think we should maybe talk about abortion. Maybe one of you wants to ask about that. But yeah. I, I thought... Um, one thing when I was reading the book, I was thinking about... Um, what about the people who really like pregnancy, who don't see it as work, who, um, I don't know, love breastfeeding, love, like, the feeling, I mean, the weirdness of having a person inside you. I mean, I have a big brain. I don't know what it, it feels like. What And can, are we allowed, I mean, I, I know, I think I know the, what I think about this, but are we allowed to write about this sort of thing if we haven't been pregnant? And what, what, yeah. what does that do to the book or the argument, or does it do anything to the argument? I would love to experience making a human inside me who wasn't going to be stolen by capitalism, you know? Um, and I think it's pretty obvious, I'm signaling it a little obviously, that I'm perversely fascinated by this, by this kind of experience <laughs> by pregnancy. I would love to live in a world in which the pleasures of pregnancy, which are... Um, you know, abundant and well documented, and and I and I hope I I give some time at least in the book to my appreciation and my and I believe I believe them I believe the people <laughs> who like to be pregnant they should be the people who are pregnant in the future you know because mm, lucky yeah, yeah. them it's not work for them <laughs> yeah. you know it's like and the person who loves ironing they yeah, should definitely be doing yeah the rest yeah. of us can sort of you know participate at, at, at a safe distance <laughs> you know <laughs> through the polyethylene of our bio bag uh, incubators you know mm. like um, or maybe do it for a week you know and then pass it back off to your friend um, I don't know I, I think um, no listen also it's um, it's it's important, I think, to recognise that um, there's all this violence and bloodiness in 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 pregnancy, partly because you know we're asking other people to do this um, all the time, unsafely and without proper healthcare. You know, I I, I think um, they should be, you know, revered and respected. The people who do this, um, not sentimentally and mawkishly, but because you know, it's to be comradely. To a, a being who has, you know, um, given you gestational diabetes and sort of um, shut down several of your core organs is a, is a fantastic, you know, testament to 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 human potential. And that's what I think people should be, you know, comradely to to the the products of their gestational neighbour. Not, you know, not this kind of I carried you for nine months, um, you know, which which luckily is quite rare as a sort of 
um, psychological blackmail. But because, you know, because, um, but because actually something too different, you know, two, two new people arose out of a pregnancy. There was a sort of mutual interactive, uh, um, you know, um, production. Um, and, and, and that transformation, you know, fascinates me. And I, and I think, I think people should continue to, to be weird and perverse and um, in, 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 in even greater and deeper ways um, along those lines. Um, I, I think that's a good moment just to ask, the, ask all the perverse people here to ask some questions. Um, are there any... Just stick your hand up and there's a mic coming around. Um, I was just kind of thinking about um, kind of afterbirth um, and the kind of deeply seated in many places the way in which queerness is separated from childhood and children or rather that children are kept at a safe distance or are thought to be or should be from queerness and how it seems like a lot of what you're saying is a lot of that work of separation and of cleaving the queer from the child begins before birth and it's not, I don't, I should put, I don't have a question ending, but it is a question. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, that's a really that's a really interesting idea. I was um, at a protest on Times Square, um, and and helped organize it here in the audience. But well, there was this you know there's this representation of the fetus by these people who are doing um, you know uh, anti-abortion you know who are proponents of forced gestation, where they you know they try and introduce us to the fetus. Uh, I think you're right that it's fundamentally an idea that this that this relation is not queer, that there is no kind of overlapping, um, no no sort of uncomfortable intimacy um, between the people involved. So you can because of this visual technology, this which I wonder if on balance whether it's been a good thing, the uses to which fetal ultrasound have been put don't seem to me to be over, overall kind of salutary at all. Um, Abby Johnson, who used to be a Planned Parenthood volunteer and is now this kind of mascot of the, of the anti-abortion movement, she, 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 she wants you to look inside her abdomen and see this face and, um, and say, ah, that's a life, that's a human. Um, and... Um, I like I like the idea that we should be thinking about queer politics in that context. You know, um, what what a what a wet, um, aquatic, weird, slimy being. You know, it's it's it seems actually I'd, I hadn't even thought about that a comradely relation to that sort of slimy alien. I mean, there's um there's something. That there's a, there's it's so cool that we breathe water. Yeah. I don't really think about that very often, but it's... Yeah, there's this, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's exactly... You're looking at a slimy alien who's breathing its own shit. And, you know, I think, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, I, because, because I'm this disloyal daughter of Donna Haraway, <laughs> I want to say really un, unuseful, at least unstrategically useful things in those contexts. Like, you know, when a guy is waving a sign that says, your body, since when does your body have uh, t- four feet, four hands, two hearts, and two entirely separate sets of DNA? And I want to be like, indeed, sir. Are you aware of how many symbiotic organisms with entirely separate sets of DNA compose this body you think of as yourself? 
since when has it been so few? You know, <laughs> let, 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 let us think about, you know, I almost, I almost got a scientist in Philadelphia to say to me, but not quite, that um, fetuses are aquatic, an aquatic species. You know, um, the, the, all the breakthroughs in neonatology have occurred because scientists have realized that, and this is so paradoxical because a lot of neonatal sort of preemie-oriented scientists who, who will quote Trump's tweets about how Democrats are killing babies now and stuff, um, they, they, they want to establish a, a, a notion of the fetus as a, as a, a, a you know, a medical patient. Um, but... In, 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 in order to do that, they have had to admit that an entirely different model of medicine is required for, for fetuses because they're not little humans. They're not little adults, Dr. Thomas Schaffer told me. Um, does that answer your question at all? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it does. Are there other questions? Oh. Hello. Thank you so much. That was really wonderful. Um, a lot of your talks sort of reminded me of like Kathy Acker and her like theories about abortion and gestation. And there's this really amazing bit in Don Quixote where she's like paying to have an abortion, and then she's like, "How could I pay for something that's producing nothing?" And it kind of made me think about ownership and the idea that an abortion is a sense, a kind of loss, or like it's not creating or producing anything yet. Like the whole kind of rhetoric around abortion is that. It's about taking ownership of a woman's womb and deciding that this is when you have to produce and this is when you have to, and this is like this is how to plan or like sort of like increase the population and how that kind of like conforms into capital. Because I think that like the whole idea of reproduction and um, sort of estates like forced like um, sterilization of certain women and then like kind of the abortion is also about saying you get to reproduce and then you don't get to reproduce and that's an inherently capitalist concept. And I think that just like ownership and loss and capitalism. Those are my questions. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, Anne Boyer raised that very scene in the in yeah in the in the Q and A at the ICA. It's 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 amazing. I mean, yeah, the notion of the happy abortion is is still controversial. There's a book by Erica Miller about about that topic. Um, overwhelmingly, um, you know, having an abortion is is not. Uh, something that is long-term um, associated with any negative emotion. You're producing something, I think, perhaps, when you have an abortion because you're producing a, a, a life that isn't... Um, I, I, I realize you don't have to use this kind of language, but, you know, invaded by a, a, a labor, a, a fetus, or, you know. Uh, and I, I, think, um, I think there's, you know... Yeah, I basically agree with you. I don't, I don't know quite how to... So we, we've been talking about death and the ways that growing into being alive and growing into being dead have a sort of relationship to one another. We need to doula both of these thresholds in more skillful ways, which is why you know, I, I want to uplift the, the, the people who, and the networks um, who, who have been doing that quietly in trans-inclusive ways, I might add, for a, a long time, you know? Although this isn't something that, um, yeah, the, the, the media who want to suddenly announce that we aren't allowed to say pregnant woman or mother or breastfeed anymore are, are, are at all aware of that, you know? Under, under the 
you know, under in the cracks and in the underbelly of the sort of repronormative regime, there's been, you know, uh, uh, exchanges of herbal abortifacients, you know, there have been black abortion politics that get completely left out of the dominant narrative that, um, you know, abortion is a sort of white feminist reproductive rights struggle and reproductive justice is what black women added, you know, that the, there, there has been so much, there is so much knowledge there um, about how there is, you know, there can be joy in the loss of the production of an abortion and that, you know, and there can be, there can be deep grief in forced gestationality as well. Um, yeah. Does that, yeah. Great. <laughs> um, thank you. That was really, really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask about um, this question about what's at stake when we describe things as work, um, because it seems to come often with the kind of political content, right? So you have Wages of Housework saying, it is work, so we must recognise it as such that can be refused. Or you have kind of awful um, Swerve saying, it is not, it cannot be work because it is kind of abusive. So I, won- um, I wonder what the kind of... Um, the claim you want, you want, if there is a kind of political claim behind this and what that is and, and how this relates to an idea of what work um, kind of might be um, and, and a kind of potential concern of if we con- conceptualise everything that uh, reproduces all of us, all of ourselves as work, are we left with a world in which a contemporary society in which there is nothing which is not, is not work? And if so, is that even a problem? Perhaps that's just an accurate description of the world. Thanks. Yeah, now Cat Forrester calls this phenomenon... Labor creep, where we, you know, you you describe more and more things that weren't previously described that way as as work. Um, I don't know. I think it's useful to make a um, a labor work distinction, right? I think we'll be left with a lot of labor when when we abolish work, which I understand to be the sort of the ways in which. I mean, this is a Federici quote, you know. Um, Nothing, ah, what is it? Nothing so successfully stifles our desires as the transformation into work of the activities that most satisfy um, our, our desires, the activities and relations that most satisfy our desires. I, you know, um, I think it's, it's sometimes, it can be strategically useful to think about the laborious dimensions. It's always dimensions. It's not, it's not ever like all of what's going on in something, but, you know, t- to understand what is, what is going on there, the productivities involved um, in order to imagine whether, you know, to, to, to consider whether we're okay with this organization of it. Um, and in a work society, as Kathy Weeks, describing things as work is almost automatically, even among radicals, describe, you know, mistaken for moral praise. And we imagine that in order to go on strike um, in a legitimate way, we have to be doing some kind of work that is very, very hard. And that's something I, want, I think that pregnancy is really good for challenging because not only do we have this kind of... Um, it exposes the way in which sometimes you need deep and elaborate forms of assistance to withdraw from work. Um, and it's not just an autonomous decision you can make like that. Um, but maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't make a great case for itself for being incredibly hard work. You know, people do say pregnancy is hard work, but you can be asleep and, and be pregnant. And yet, I think it is work that you should, under any circumstances, for any reason, be completely supported by society in withdrawing from. So I think it helps us, particularly on the radical left, there's, there's still a tendency, I think, to, you know, invo- inv- participate in this kind of 
overworked Olympics, you know, where, where even in our activism, we're, 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 we're sort of overworked to the max and we should only go on strike if we are, you know, deeply, deeply burdened by hard, hard work. I don't, I think we need to recall the queer, you know, right to be lazy and support um, and this is something that kind of comes into my chapter, which I call the uh, she she did it for the money, you know she did she did it for the money is something that we exclude from our welfare rights politics. There, there are famous kind of uh, quotes from from very militant you know leaders of the welfare rights movement that I that I support in many ways that she did it for the money as a lie. You know, women don't have children for money has been the line. And I'm not sure that's true at all. And I don't, I don't see why it should have to be true for us to, to be in complete solidarity, you know, with, um, with people who do mothering and uh, who, 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 who see a crossover between a kind of um, prostitutedness and, and that labor, you know, like we are all in some senses kind of whores in, in, in certain dimensions of our existences to greater and lesser extents. And so, you know, we can't be competing. We can't be sort of lining up, the legit, you know, scoring our legitimacy and our right, you know, to complain about work um, if we want to get free. Thanks for your time. Oh, right. Okay. Um, you talked a bit about the pregnant self being more than one, but not two, and also about um, individuals never being just status. And I was just... Obviously, these debates are like relevant to abortion, but I'm thinking more about childbirth in that, in the present sense, in some ways we have to engage more with personhood debates because when a baby emerges from flesh, we give it a passport in the way that we don't have to engage, we don't have to engage with them if we don't want to in abortion. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how when your argument breaks down the individual in many ways and I was wondering if you could talk more about the consequences of that for like systems which rely on the individual so medical ethics in childbirth for example um, or even in abortion or whatever way but the idea of the individual and more about your argument in that I think you know okay well one one controversial way of responding to this I suppose which I've already mooted in public is that I think even a human individual, um, you know, accredited, passported, and so on, is is perhaps um, something that we could think of in terms of um, an ethical killing. I don't know. I, I think the threshold of birth is extremely important, but I don't. I I I, I think in terms of medical ethics, um, you know, that there is there is a moment right before that threshold where I still support the right to kill. As a humanism, um, I, I don't. I think. I think it makes sense to to, to make neonates to give neonates kind of um, certain <laughs> certain sort of dignities and uh, and so on. But you know, you're not. It takes a while for a person to be able to develop a politics. Children's politics. Where do they begin? I don't. I don't know. Um, I in terms of medical ethics, I I, I think we you know. We shouldn't be talking about fetuses as medical patients. I think I can say that. Is that enough for you? <laughs> I haven't. I don't. I don't go into this much in my book, and I will do some more thinking yeah. as of now about what you're saying because it does seem key. Um, but I mean, 
Yeah, I, I'm influenced by the stuff in Haraway about holding and being responsible to the violence that we already meet out, and and by the Fanonian idea that in this world we can only be sort of anti-violent, and it's about minimization of 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 brutality and bloodshedding, without without fantasizing that we could just abstract ourselves from it or refuse, you know, our involvement in it. And there are forms of humanist. Violence um, that that probably in medicine we need to face up to as well. I don't know if this is wrong, but your question made me think of so if we have a more perfect family, that means the individual is cared for better. It's not just the person who's given birth to you or the person who's related to you, but someone who's elected to do that. And that that so the individual becomes really important in that model, doesn't it? Because it's sort of you know the idea that you can have a better family where you know you don't. You know, your mum hugs you when you cry instead of says, shouts at you and say, why are you upset? You know, like that sort of thing, that that relies on the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they always in, they're always in dialogue, is my feeling. Is that... Yeah. Am I okay. summarising it wrong? No, that's right. <laughs> OK. Um, I think that's all we have time for. But Sophie will sign books wow. and um, you can ask more questions and um, just thank you all for your terrific questions and, um, and thanks, Sophie. Let's give a round of applause. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.